Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So what causes the panic attacks for me is when these, those negative thoughts keep popping in your head, popping in your head, popping in your head. And then if it does manifest itself, God forbid, I feel like I created that. Yeah. You know? Do you still have as much passion and as much fun doing radio as you did when you really got in your blood? I think sometimes we can get caught up in being caricatures of ourselves. I knew that a microphone was going to change my life. That was Charlemagne the God you were just listening to. And let me talk about this gentleman for a few minutes because I have to tell you, I have a tremendous respect for this man. You've probably heard him on The Breakfast Club with DJ Envy and Angela Yee. He's on in 90 markets around the country and Revolt TV Network, which was founded by Sean Puff Daddy Combs. He's a New York Times bestselling author, one book, Black Privilege, and he's now released his second book, Shook One. I have so much respect for Charmaine because he is as real as it comes. He's willing to talk about things that just aren't talked about in his world. Mental illness, anxiety, things that have really plagued him in his life, and he has really advanced the narrative and made it okay to talk about these things. He owns his truth. He is really clear in the path for others, so they will not feel shame if they have to deal with things in their life and deal with mental health. You know, recently they were saying The Breakfast Club is the most dangerous morning show in America. And I'll tell you why they say that. Because they get real. They talk about the real deal. And if people don't want to be honest and get real, then they don't want to go there. These guys are not ambushers. They just get real. And that's who he is. And he has made that a strategy for his life. And he doesn't consider himself done. He considers himself a work in progress. This is one of the most charming guys you're ever going to meet. There's just something refreshing about people that are real, honest, and authentic. And that's exactly who Charlemagne the God is. We're going to get busy with him in just a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. 
we've done each other's shows. Yes, and sir. Now we're sitting down doing this. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. Fill in the blanks. Yeah, fill in the blanks. That's a pretty good title, That's huh? That's a great title. Yeah. I thought it said fill in the banks, and I, I was thinking, like, is that a play off the Fresh Prince? Because on Fresh Prince, his uncle was Uncle Phil, and it was Philip Banks. Oh, really? Yeah, so I just thought somebody here was a Fresh Prince fan, and I said, oh, that's blanks. No, but fill in the bank would be good, too. Yeah, I mean, you, you got a lot of that. Yeah, you make a lot of money. You got to have some money, right? Yeah. You got to work at it. So tell me about your radio show. I believe in a defined product. Do you have a mission in mind for your radio show, a brand in mind, a particular mindset? Yeah, I have a mission. Um, always say that. In life, you have to be the perfect balance of ratchetness and righteousness. So for me, I feel like when you're blessed with the kind of platform that, that I've been blessed with, you know, to have a nationally syndicated radio show that's on in 100, and, 100 cities and 150 countries, it's like you got to give the people the right information. I'm not an expert at anything, so I like to bring the experts on. I like to bring on voices that I feel like can uplift people and move the culture forward or, you know, recommend books that I think can help, you know, empower people in some way, shape or form. So I feel like when you got that kind of platform, I think your job is to, to entertain and educate to the best of your ability, honestly. Yeah, I agree with that. Since people can't see, Charlemagne has also just written a book called Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me, and it's been out for just a little while. And he is already a New York Times best-selling author. His first book was Black Privilege. His current book is Shook One. Yes, sir. And guys, I've read this book. In fact, I, I marked stuff up. Yeah, it looks like a church Bible. The way I know, you got it marked up. and I've got things <laughs> marked all through it. And I got to tell you, I had him on my show at the end of October. And one of the things he said is that he's not an expert. He's just got life experience. But let me tell you, he's used that life experience in a very insightful way. So if you haven't read Shook One, I stand by this book. I recommend it. I think that it is insightful. I think it is inspirational. And I think you will find things in here that will change the way you approach the challenges in your life. And I think you will bitch less and whine less after you read it. <laughs> uh, because seriously, you had chances to go lay down and whine about shit, or you could just get up and go do something about it. And you got up and did something about it. Yeah. That's why I say, you know, you got to use that fear as fuel. You got to use that anxiety as fuel. Like I had every reason to just give it up, cash it in. But those options of, you know, being broke, sitting under the tree, being in prison, are being dead really scared me. And like when I started to get in a lot of trouble and some of those experiences started to happen to me, my father would always say that if you don't change your lifestyle, you know, you're going to end up in one of those three places. So yeah. I was shook to death. You know, they always say smart people learn from their own mistakes. Wise people learn from the mistakes of others. I made some mistakes myself, but I saw some of those mistakes really affecting people to the yeah. point where I was like, yo, my father was absolutely right. That's why the best advice I can give kids, man, is listen to your elders. Because everything that we could possibly think to do, they've already done. And history repeats itself. Yes. When I took history, I thought, why the hell am I sitting here listening to a bunch of people dead 200 years? <laughs> it repeats itself. That's why you do it. So who do you look up to? Who are your mentors? Your father, is he a positive in your life or a negative? My father was both. You know, he was a positive and a negative because I feel like he was a really good man. But I also feel like he instilled in me... I feel like there's no definition of masculinity. There's no definition of what a man should be. And I think that the definition that they try to give us usually revolves around getting as much women as possible, 
being as tough as possible. And I think that's the kind of father my dad was. He was trying to instill that stuff in me. Like I remember catching him cheating on my mom and like confronting him about it. And he kind of like chuckled at me and was like, <laughs> you got one girl, huh? He was like, one day you'll understand. He was right. Cause I cheated on my, my wife at a point, but it's just like, that don't make it right. Right. You know, and that's the kind of stuff he would instill in me. But he was a good man, though. Like, he taught me how to work hard. He was the one that was, you know, on my ass when I was in the street, not doing what I was supposed to be doing. Like, he didn't give up on me, even though he would give me that tough love and say things like, ah, oh, let him die. We collect the insurance money. Uh, it was tough love. He beat me with an extension cord, made me go take a bath. It was all tough love, you know? Yeah. So I think he had a lot of positives, but then he just had the negatives as far as being a good husband. Is he still alive today? Yes, sir. Do you have a relationship with him? Yeah, and we had some ups and downs this year. He didn't know that, though. I, I was having ups and downs with him because I'm unloading to my therapist about all of the things I historically didn't like about him, and especially the way him and my mom ended up, you know, getting a divorce and him you know, marrying another woman that he was cheating on my mom with. And it's like he asked me to do something for him and it revolved around him and his new family. Mind you, he's been with his new family for like 20 years, so they're fine. But it was just like, he got real grandkids. Like he's got my three kids, my yeah. sister has a kid, my two brothers got children. And he wasn't acknowledging his own grandkids, but embracing his step-grandchildren like they were actually his grandkids. And that like really pissed me off in a bad way. But, you know, as a son, you still have a fear of your father. Yeah. So you don't confront him about it. So I, I told my mom and I told my therapist and I had to build up the courage to finally just call him and get it off my chest. And once I did that, we've been in a real good place. How did he take it? He took it very well. He actually yeah. didn't give me any resistance. And he, his first words out of his mouth was, yeah, absolutely right. I need to do better. Simple as that. And yeah. then like sometimes all it takes is a conversation. You know, I yeah. think sometimes we be fighting wars with people and we be having beef with people and issues with people and the other person may not even really know why. I'm just giving off an energy like, man, I don't rock with him. But yeah. I've never given that person a chance to correct the wrong. So you got to give people a chance to correct the wrong. Tell you, some of the hardest forgiveness I've ever done, the people never even knew that they had transgressed against me. <laughs> and they don't even know it till today because the forgiveness is on this end. Yeah. They don't even have to know sometimes. You let yourself free when you finally do it, when you say, look, I'm not going to invest in that anymore. I've been fighting that one. I used to think forgiveness was overrated, but then now I feel like forgiveness is kind of the only way. Because either you're going to forgive somebody or you're just going to hold on to their hate, and the hate really just stresses you out more than it stresses them out. You know, I think when you hate somebody, I think it's like you're locked in a bond with them. Mm. And, I mean, it's like there are people I don't want to spend the rest of my life locked in this bond with them. And then if I let it go, it's like, holy shit, I'm free. True. I don't have to invest in them anymore for the rest of my life. I don't even care if they know it. I've let go. I don't have any pain with them. I don't have any energy with them. I don't. And it changes who you are. It changes the way you're a father, a husband, a friend. Hates like a skunk. It yeah. permeates everything, every part of your life. So when you let it go, I mean, it's great. I always say I think we have 10 defining moments make seven critical choices and meet five pivotal people by the time we're 40 years old. Mm. It sounds like your dad would be one of your five pivotal people. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. It's interesting because you have panic attacks. Well, at least I have panic attacks because I don't want to be anything like him. I want the good that he had, but I don't want the bad at all because I feel like the bad is kind of like what ruined 
our family for the most, I don't want to say ruined, but it kind of like shifted the the trajectory of, of where our family was going. Cause like my older sister had my pops. I had my pops, my two younger brothers and my little sister had my pops in pieces, yeah. you know, because he was with a whole nother family by that time. I don't think that affected the family in a positive way. So it's like things like cheating on my wife scared me so much, not only because I feel like I'm hurting my life partner and I'm hurting the closest person to me, but also because I don't want to ruin my happy home. Like I don't want to be the guy, the part-time father that's coming around on weekends. You know, I feel like you got to be in your children's life every single day, micromanaging that, that situation. Tell me this. How do you think, like right now, you would say you're certainly successful as a father, a husband, and in business, right? Yes, sir. How did you become who you are today? What got you to be who you are versus somebody that was born on the same street you were born on, Mm -hmm. went to the same school you went, when you guys graduated from high school, you all went out the same door into the world. And they're maybe working at a 7-Eleven or a factory or maybe not at all. And here you are, world famous, Mm -hmm. and you have a healthy marriage with beautiful children. Why are you where you are and they're where they are? Choices. You know, I always say destiny is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. This is what I chose to do. I, I chose to do radio. You know, I didn't have a college degree. You know, I didn't have anything else to fall back on. I was just looking to do something positive. You know, I was, I was selling crack. You know, I, I was in and out of jail. You know, I, I got kicked out of two high schools, you know, and I ended up graduating from, from night school. And I had to make a conscious decision to say, you know what, man, I got to create positive energy in my life because positive energy is what activates constant elevation. I actually use that as an acronym for peace. So I started working a bunch of odd jobs. I worked at a clothing store in the mall called Demo. I worked at a telemarketing place. I used to be the guy that would call your house and try to sell you 10 CDs for a penny. You know, I worked at a warehouse, a flower garden, Taco Bell, and I stumbled across the radio position because I used to want to rap like most brothers in the hood. Because a lot of times when you're black and you're from the hood, the people you see that are successful that look like you are either in athletics or entertainment. I mean, I'm only 5'6". So, you know, the athletics thing wasn't going to work out, yeah. you know. <laughs> you know, do something different. Exactly. So I, and I, so I thought I wanted to rap. And I remember being at this recording studio and meeting a guy named Willie Will. And he was a local radio personality in Charleston, South Carolina. So I just asked him. I said, yo, how did you get in the radio? I'm an inquisitive person. Even to this day, I like to ask a lot of questions, especially when I see people in positions or spaces that I would like to be in. And he was just like, I went down there and I got an internship. And I was like, it's that easy? And he was like, yeah. And mind you, this is 1998 in Charleston, South Carolina. So the yeah. process was that easy. So that's what I did. I went down there, filled out the internship papers, and I got my foot into the door of radio. And I didn't look back. I remember, you know, starting off as a regular intern, driving the station vehicles, you know, going to, with the jocks to put up posters and stuff at the different remotes. I would go get the jocks weed if they needed weed. And they really like to have me around then. That's when they start requesting you. Could you get make sure Charlemagne is, yeah. the, is driving us to this remote? Yeah. So I would always be around. And then, like, Willie Will would have me talk on the radio and the different other, the other personalities would be shouting me out. And one day, the music director named Ron White, he was like, yo, you should be on the radio. You ever thought about being on the air? And I was like, no, but I am now. So they started letting me voice track 11 to 3 on Sunday mornings. And that turned into me doing my own shift 7 to midnight on Saturday nights. And it's just like... I got bit with that bug. I was like, 
this is what I want to do with my life. Yeah. Like I would do this for free and I have done it for free. So you knew when you first got in front of that mic and started talking, you knew this feels right to me. A hundred percent. And you know, it's so funny. I have a tattoo of Wolverine from the X-Men on my arm holding a microphone. I got this tattoo when I was like 17, 18 years old when tattoos were illegal in South Carolina. And I knew that a microphone was going to change my life. But I thought that that microphone symbolized me rapping. But no, it symbolized me being a radio personality, a broadcaster, because a microphone is what changed my life. But I knew, I sat in that radio station and I listened to Tom Joyner and Doug Banks. And I listened to Howard Stern. I, I started listening to old Frankie Crocker and Petey Green. And I said to myself, if I'm going to do radio, I want to do it on that level. I want to be what they call a super jock. Like, I don't want to be a guy just, you know, doing the time and temperature and, you yeah. know, introducing the next songs on a, radio, a local radio station somewhere. Like, I wanted to be a personality in every sense of the word. And I didn't have any reason to believe that I could get there other than I believed. Like, that's it. <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. Because yeah. nobody else in my family did radio. I didn't have any, anybody to look to and say, oh, yeah, that guy was a radio personality or that guy was a TV personality, like nothing. I had no reason to believe other than I believed. How did you pick your style and your brand in your flap on your book? And the book we're talking about is Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me, which I'm going to keep doing shameless plugs on this because you got to read this book. Thank I you. shit you none. you got to read this book. It is good. And look, he's not trying to be some professional here. He's not trying to be some backdoor therapist. He's telling you from an experience what he's gone through, what he goes through with anxiety and panic attacks and PTSD. And if you want to talk about sin, talk to a sinner. You want to talk about anxiety and panic attacks, talk to somebody that's been there. I'm and he's got too. the guts to tell you. I'm a sinner too. Yeah, uh, yeah, we can throw that in too. Uh, but how did you pick your style? Because it says in your flat cover that you do challenging celebrity interviews. So. You're edgy on the radio, right? Well, that's, that's what they say. I don't even know who the they is, but... Whoever wrote this in your book said... I didn't write that part. Like, that's somebody talking about me. Okay. But um, the best thing about my initial radio style is, like, I didn't know how to do radio. Like, I'm fresh off the streets of Monk's Corner, South Carolina, doing radio in Charleston, South Carolina, which is 20 minutes away. Like, I did not know how to do radio. Only, only thing I knew how to do was do what I'm doing right now, which is have a conversation. So that's what separate me from all the other announcers that were on the station. Everybody else was a time and temperature person introducing the next song. I didn't do that. Like, sometimes I'd be on the microphone high. Sometimes I'd be in there drunk. I would answer the phones and be talking to people and playing the calls over the air. And, like, that's what you know, kind of propelled me, the fact that I did not know how to do traditional radio. And I think that's something that is just, you know, I've carried with me. Do you have a strategy? I mean, do you like bait your guests sometimes into things that are controversial? Because I've seen a lot of footage. You had a guy walk out, what's yeah, his name? Birdman. Birdman. Yeah, that was, that was actually a, about a couple of years ago. But, you know, historically, I had always given Birdman a lot of shit because, like, you know, he has a reputation for not paying his artists. And, you know, it was a picture of him and one of his, his main artists, Lil Wayne, you know, kissing on the lips. So I would, like, say that they were, like, the hip-hop version of The Notebook. And, like, he just never liked that. So it's just, like, that's, that's, that's a prime example of rational anxiety because when he came to the station, like, I knew he was coming to the station. We knew he was coming to do an interview. I knew 
what I had been saying about him. I'm not clueless. So I knew he was going to confront me about it. So that's not one of those moments where I'm going to go into a panic attack mode because I know he's coming with something. I just don't know what that, that something is. So it's not like I have a style of I want to get under this person's skin. It's just that I'm going to address what's out there. And I think that the times have changed a lot because we live in such an age of transparency. Yeah. So all of these artists and these athletes and these celebrities, they know what's being said about them. It's just that certain outlets they go to aren't going to ask the most obvious question. Like I could be sitting here with a horn sticking out of my head and people will just sit there and talk to you about the weather. Like it's not a big horn sticking out of your head. Charlamagne's going to be like, so why is that horn sticking out of your head? Which is a very simple question. Yeah. You know, I learned that from my three-year-old. You know what my three-year-old's favorite question is? Why? Yeah. Everything oh is God. why. Why, 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 why. Why? Daddy, yeah. what are you drinking? Water. Why? Yeah, why is the sky blue? Yeah, just, why? Yeah. Everything is why. And that's how I feel. Like, everything is why. Larry King also taught me that, too. Larry King said to me, the best question you can always ask is why. Yeah. And I just feel like I always ask the why question. I've spent my whole career, I've based my whole career on figuring out why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do. Mm. I mean, that has propelled me since I was 12 years old. Yeah. Why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do. And if you figure that out, you got a leg up on the world, man. Yeah. And why is it so hard to do what it is you're supposed to do? And so easy to do what you're not. <laughs> yeah. But it gives you a leg up. Do you still have as much passion and as much fun doing radio as you did when you really got in your blood? Yeah. Depends. It's ups and downs. You know what I mean? I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's very challenging, but you have to be, like I said, you got to be very cognizant of, of what you're doing as a human being, meaning how are you growing? How are you evolving? Like, I think sometimes we can get caught up in being caricatures of ourselves, And, you know, that's something I always said I didn't want to do. But at times, you know, in the past eight years on The Breakfast Club, I've definitely found myself getting caught up in a caricature of me because of the things you read in that flap, you know, or the things you'll read about yourself in magazines or the comments you'll see about yourself on YouTube or Twitter. You start trying to be what it is people are saying you are. Like if you're getting attention for a certain thing, then you feel like subconsciously you start pushing more of that instead of actually being yourself. So I think I'm having more fun now because I'm finally like back to being what it is I am. Like, yo, I want to talk about therapy right now. I want to talk about being vulnerable. I want to talk about my anxiety. Like, these are, these are creating some great conversations on The Breakfast Club nowadays. So what do you think your reputation is? I don't think I have one set reputation. I think if you ask 10 different people about me, you'll probably get 10 different answers, you know? But I feel like as long as the the core elements are the same, then I think I'm on the, the right path. Like, if if the people say... Yo, he's very honest. Oh, yo, he's authentic. Even if they say, man, Charlemagne is what he is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I can take all of that. You got crossways with Rolling Stone magazine. What did you get crossways about? A good friend of mine, his name is Little Duval. He's a comedian slash recording artist because he had a he got a hit song. He had the number one song in the country on the hip hop and R&B charts this year. It's called Smile Bitch. I had him on my show last year and um, it was the same week that we had Janet Mock on the show. And um, my co-host was showing Little Duval to cover a Janet Mock's book. And he, he, he asked her, you know, it, it got into a conversation about, oh, no, it was a conversation when Donald Trump was banning transgenders from the military. And um, my co-host asked him if he slept with a woman and the woman told him she used to be a man, what would he do? And his response was, 
I would be so mad I'd want to kill her. And I was like, whoa, 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 you can't say that. That's a hate crime. Like, you can't go around talking about killing transgender women. And it was like, he caught so much backlash, but then I caught so much backlash as well, just because I'm me, you know? And they felt like I gave him the platform to say that, and they know that's my friend. And so I just got caught in the crosshairs, and Rolling Stone actually ran a headline saying Charlemagne the God under fire for transphobic comments. I didn't make the comments. So that's when me and Rolling Stone had a had a little issue. Yeah, because I read that at the time and listened to what was said, and I thought, I didn't get it. Because mm-hmm. like, you didn't say shit. No. I, but you know what I didn't do? I didn't push back as hard as I should have. But I guess because I'm not a member of the LGBT community. And so it's like I didn't understand what transgenders and transsexuals were going through at the time. Like, I didn't know the murder rate was so high around transgenders and transsexuals and why that statement was so triggering. Because, I mean, if, if that was a conversation about race, uh, you know, uh, uh, violence against women, uh, you know, I would have probably pushed back a lot harder. Yeah. You know, but being that it was the transgenders, I was like, I didn't take it as serious as I should have. Well, you guys settled that in a really charitable way, though, right? You yeah. and Rolling Stone? Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, we were nice enough to cut a check to um, uh, a black LGBT rights group. Yeah. So that was so, that was good. I mean, you guys settled it, and it turned out to actually benefit a group. That's usually the story of my life. That's why yeah. I've, I've learned that impact sometimes is greater than intention. Yeah. Because I've learned in my life that I can have the greatest of intentions and things still go the wrong way, (laughs) but then eventually turn out the way I wanted them to. But sometimes like impact is just greater because like I can have the greatest intentions when I say something, but it may not come out the right way and may impact people negatively. So I think sometimes we got to focus on impact more than actual intention. What's the impact of your words going to be? Not the intention of them. Tell me about anxiety for you. When was the first time that you, because you said you didn't know anxiety was a mm-hmm. thing. You didn't know it was a mental condition, mm-hmm. an emotional condition that was treatment worthy. Now that you know, now that you figured it out, looking back, when did it start for you? When was the first time you had something that would qualify? When I was like 10. Really? Yeah, it was Hurricane Hugo. Uh, Monk's Corner, South Carolina, Hurricane Hugo was a Category 5 that hit South Carolina. And at the time we were living in a single wide trailer. And I remember everybody on our dirt road had to evacuate. We all went to this local elementary school called Whitesville Elementary School. And it was just like listening to all the panic from the adults and you know them saying things like, they don't know if their trailer's gonna be there tomorrow or the house's not gonna be there. Or we might not make it through the night. Like I remember that same feeling, heart beating crazy, shortness of breath, like, man, what's gonna happen? You know, and, and that, that wasn't even, an irrational fear. That was actual fear, fear, yeah. you know? So that's the first time I remember having it. But I mean, I've had it so much throughout my life, man. And it's so weird because I think about times where I used to hide in the woods or hide in the cornfield away from people just because I didn't want to see certain individuals because I was having such bad panic attacks, you know? Or sometimes like I would be having a panic attack and want to be left alone and know that one of my neighbors might come walking down the road. I might see them from a distance and dart off in the cornfield just to, like, get away from them. So I've been having panic attacks my whole life just not knowing what they were. Do you know what triggers it? Have you learned what triggers are? It's weird, man, because I'm like, I don't know what the word for this is, but it's sort of like being a mental hypochondriac. I'm a hypochondriac, period. 
Really? But, but yeah, but I'm a mental hypochondriac as well because I'm the type of person to see something on the news, like some rare disease, and think that I'm going to get it. You know, I remember it's a rapper named Pimp C. He died uh, December 4th of like 2007, and they just found him dead in a hotel room, and nobody knew what he had died for originally. So, and some people were saying it was a heart attack. So I remember that whole day convincing myself that I was going to die of a heart attack that day. Like I could not shake that out of my head. So much so that I went to the emergency room that night. Got to the emergency room. Doctor tells me what he always tells me. Like, there's nothing wrong with your heart. Your heart is fine. Did you have a panic attack? I'm like, a panic attack? I don't, I don't have no panic attack. Do you have anxiety? No, I don't, have any, I don't have anxiety. Did you have some caffeine, energy drink? I'm like, oh, I drank a Red Bull that day. So I could always point to something else to deflect mm-hmm. from the fact that, no, you just have anxiety. Whether it was stress or an energy drink. Like, no, like you have anxiety and I had to I had to get a handle on that so I don't necessarily know what causes it because it could be little things like I, I had a panic attack a couple weeks ago because my co-host was reporting a story about human trafficking and she was talking about these little girls getting found in Michigan and then I looked on social media and saw like some human trafficking going on in Virginia and automatically just start thinking about my 10 year old daughter you know and like, like I'm trying to push all of that out of my head because I feel like I feel like your thoughts really do become things and like I said, the only reason I'm here right now is because I believed I could be here. So the things I want to happen in my life, I constantly think about. The things I don't want to happen, I don't think about at all. So what causes the panic attacks for me is when these those negative thoughts keep popping in your head, popping in your head, popping in your head. And then if it does manifest itself, God forbid, I feel like I created that. Yeah. You know? Well, the first book I wrote was called Life Strategies, and I wrote about the 10 laws of life, and one of them is what I fear I create. Mm. If you think about Mm. it, what I fear I create. It's like with athletes. If they fear they're going to hurt their knee because they've come back too soon, they'll run funny, they'll favor it, they'll create the very thing they're afraid of. Yeah. I can't do it anymore because my daughter's in fifth grade, but I used to pop up at my daughter's daycare all the time, pop up at her school all the time. Now you can't because you just can't walk up into school anymore because she's in fifth grade. But I used to have to do that for me yeah, just to relieve my stress. Be my sure stress. she's okay. Yeah, that's it. Simple as that. Because, I mean, it, it can be little things. I can watch a video of a, a woman in daycare beating up on a child. You know, you'd be like, yo, what the hell is wrong with these people? So it's just like every now and then you just got to pop up and make sure everything's going to be okay. Like, that's, that's one reason I really don't like to stay anywhere. I'm flying out on the red eye at night because I just want to get back home, you know? Like, I don't, I don't like to stay the night places. I just like to be home. And when my kids call me in the middle of the night, I want to be there. Yeah. A certain degree of vigilance, it's not a bad idea in this day and time. Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, I, you can overdo it, but you got to remain vigilant. So what kind of therapy are you getting? What are they doing for your anxiety? What works for you? What works for me is um, exercises. And I have a very sensible therapist who listens to all my stories and she listens with the intent to understand and not just reply. And what really made me really dig her was one day I just came in there and unloaded on her and she looked at me and she goes, "Woo," <laughs> you know? And I was like, a lot, it's a lot, right? And she was like, yeah. And she just kind of like sat there for a second and then just kind of like walked me through it, you know? And then she teaches me like, just simple breathing exercises, because sometimes that's all I really need. Like, I just need to talk myself off the ledge and figure out ways to keep those negative thoughts from repeating in my mind 1,200, 1,400 times a minute, like you said. Do you do anything physically? Exercise. 
I got stress balls. I have yeah. stress balls. I work out three to four times a week. You know, I think about when I was young, I repeat daily affirmations to myself. You know, I used to always say, I love Jehovah God and his son, Jesus Christ. I love Jehovah God and his son, Jesus Christ. I love Jehovah God and his son, Jesus Christ. Go away, Satan. Go away, Satan. Go away, Satan. And then when my panic attacks would get real intense, I would straight up say, fuck Satan. Fuck Satan. Fuck Satan. Because my mentality was, in the Bible, it's, they said, Job said, they told Job, curse God and die. So I said, if I curse Satan, I'll be blessed. So that's what I used to do. So it's just like repeating constant daily affirmations to myself, praying, taking deep breaths, breathing, and really like call, like getting to the source of whatever it is, you know, the, whatever my anxiety is. The problem sometimes is when the source of your anxiety is literally something that I saw on television, yeah. something I read in a magazine, something I heard in the radio, something I heard happen to somebody else. You know, I've had, you know, friends who's, who my worst fear has happened to them, you know, like, you know, the, the fear of losing your wife, not losing her like divorce, but like dying in like a car accident. You know what I'm saying? I recently had something like that happen. And it's like, man, you know, when, when you hear that story and then you don't have the words for your friend, you know what I'm saying? You don't have the words to tell your friend and like you're trying to think about your friend, but you're also not trying to think about this story because when you think about that story, it makes you think about your own situation and something like that happening to to your wife. So that's like the, the tricky part of how to deal with that kind of stuff, man. And that's something I'm trying to navigate now. When you say you're a hypochondriac, do you read about something or see something on TV? Is that what triggers that? Oh, 100%. Or? I thought I was going to get Ebola. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I thought I was going to get SARS. You know, any, any of that. All of that stuff. When, remember when they were sending the bombs, the pipe bombs? And they just were sending pipe bombs just now, but... When they were sending the bombs in Austin, Texas, to random people. Yeah. Literally last week when they were sending the pipe bombs, I pulled up to my house and I just saw all these boxes on the porch. I'm circling the boxes, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> trying to see what the labels are. Then I'm like, oh, that's just Zara. Yeah. You know, and my wife's just ordering stuff. If you think you have a disease or you think that you've got some infection or something, what do you do about it? How does it paralyze you? Oh, I go to the doctor. Immediately, like my uh, my my doctor will tell you right now, like she'll like you cannot get another physical, <laughs> like, yeah. like you're you're fine. I promise you, you're fine. Like my I had a friend die last year of stomach cancer, you know, and I remember I visited him a week before he like really went bad, and 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 you know he died. And his name was Reggie Osei, Combat Jack, and he was just telling me all the symptoms. He was like. You know, my stomach started to get big and I thought it was because I wasn't eating right and because I was doing so much drinking and then I got sick and I went to the hospital. By the time you got to the hospital, it was stage four cancer. So in my mind, I'm looking in the mirror like, yeah, my stomach getting a little big. Like, yeah, I got a knot right here. I'm just making up stuff and I'm going to the doctor and she's like, what are you talking about? Like, she's like, what are you talking about now? That's still going on, but you're in therapy. What are they doing about you thinking about that? It's just a process. Like, it's just, I'm, I'm talking my way through it. You know, she's talking me off the ledge in a lot of situations. Like, you know, she gives real simple advice. Like, you know, you do realize this is all in your mind. Like, you went to the doctor, right? I'm like, yeah. The doctor said you're fine, right? And I'm like, yeah. So what's the issue? And I'm like, I don't know. That's why I'm here yeah. talking to you yeah. now. So it's kind of like just rationalizing things in your brain. That's why, that's why I believe in like irrational anxiety and rational anxiety. You know, yeah. I'm not on any medication. She hasn't put me on any medication. She just kind of like talks me through it and, and gives me ex breathing exercises. Do you ever get nervous when you're getting ready to do an appearance? Yes, I do. 
like in front of an audience or something? Yes, but I expect that. So yeah. That's what I mean when I say rational anxiety. Like when I come out on your show, I know I'm on live television. You yeah. know, I know that it's a bunch of people out there watching me. So I can't, you know, get myself in a Cindy Brady, Brady Bunch moment where the light comes on and I'm just yeah, sitting there at the camera frozen. Like, yo, it's sink or swim at this point. So I expect to have anxiety in those situations. But once you're out there, like when you were on my show, it wasn't 30, 45 seconds that you know how to read a room. Yeah. You immediately know this audience really likes you. They like us together. They're having yeah. fun with us having fun. Do you pick up on that and immediately get... Yeah, and it's therapeutic. You relax? Yeah, it's therapeutic for me in a way. You know, yeah. like, I don't like compliments. For whatever reason, I'm used to, to somebody telling me they hate me more than somebody telling me they like me. So even when you say the room is cool and it's a good vibration, I do feel that energy, but I know I can't play to that crowd either. So what I really do in those situations is just be me. Like what I've learned to do in my life is live my truth. So nobody can use my truth against me. The easiest thing in the world for me to do is be myself. If I try to be anything else, I'm going to lose every single time. Does that boil down to get them before they get me? No. What do you it, mean? It, no. You don't like compliments and you oh, can't play I, to the room. So I just don't feel like you should play to the room because I feel like you'll hear, those, you'll hear those cheers. And then when you say something and don't hear the cheers, you'll be questioning yourself like, oh, my God, did I just say something stupid? Like, did that suck? Oh, they, they think I'm trash now. You say you would ride it up and down. That's all. If I, you got sensitive to it. So for me, I'm just out there telling my story, telling my experience. You ask me a question, I'm answering it. However the crowd reacts is how they react. Like, I can't play to the crowd and try to get a laugh from the crowd or try to get a awe oh, from the crowd or any of that. Like, yeah. I just got to tell my story. But you understand when you are being truthful and you are being authentic, you know that plays. Oh, absolutely. You know, people know the truth when they hear it. I feel like the universe responds to honest people. That's yeah. why I'm always truthful, even whether it's good, whether it's bad, or whether it's ugly. That's why I have no problem sharing any experiences from my life, you yeah. know, because I just feel like, I feel like you, you go through certain things because, you know, God is working through you. He's making you go through certain things so he can work through you to reach other people. Do you need anxiety? Yes. I feel like anxiety is a lot of people's spider sense in a lot of ways. Like if you became calm, if all of a sudden you were just chill all the time, you didn't have these really hypersensitive, anxious moments, do you think you would lose something? Yes, I'd lose my age. And the funny part about that is that's what really made me start going to therapy last year because I was having those moments in moments of what should have been serenity and what should have been peace, you know? Like you're sitting around and everything is all good. Like financially, everything's all good. Your health is good, your kids are good. Like I'm literally in the house. I know where my daughters are at. I know where my wife is at. I shouldn't have no anxiety in this moment. And then all of a sudden I start thinking about a home invasion. Do you think you don't deserve the success? A hundred percent. I'm gonna be found out. I mean, this is all gonna be taken away because you don't really deserve it. A hundred percent. Like I don't, and I don't. I don't even know why I feel that way. Like I don't feel like I did anything special. That's why I try to go out of my way when I'm in places. You know, what I mean, I want to. I say hello to everybody. Like I'm not no better than anyone. I don't care who it is. Like hi, how are you? Because I don't feel like I'm even supposed. 
to be here, mm-hmm. you know? So let me let me welcome myself and introduce myself to everyone, you know? Because I truly believe that my manners will take you where money won't. That's what some. That's what my grandma used to always tell me. Manners will take you where money won't. And I feel like when you're the, the nicest person in the situation, like I don't feel like I have any particular skill set. So what I think keeps giving me, what keeps getting me opportunities is people saying, I like him. He's a nice guy. He's a pleasure to work with. Like mm-hmm. I feel like that's what keeps me coming back to people and keeps having people bring me back. Do you think you have a damaged personal truth? Yeah, I think we're all damaged. You know, I think that we'll never be whole. Like, I think that there's certain things in my life that I don't think I could ever truly forgive myself for. Because, you know, when you come from the hood, you think about a lot of the damage that you've caused in the hood. Like, I used to sell crack, you know? And I, I can think of situations like, you know, a young woman whose mother was a crackhead and this young woman was like super intelligent, like 1600 on the SATs type intelligent and yeah. could go to any college she wanted to, but she she chose to go to a school in South Carolina and would come home every weekend just to watch her mom because her mom was strung out on crack and we were the ones serving her mom crack. And eventually she stopped going to college altogether. So in my mind, I feel like indirectly, we, we stopped this young lady's progress. So, you know, I think it's easy to pat yourself on the back and talk about how you made it out of the hood, but what about all of the damage you caused while you were in the hood and the, the, the families you may have ruined through your actions? Mm-hmm. So it's like, for me, that's why I try to pay it forward so much and I try to do so much for my community. And, you know, that's why I mentor a lot of these kids nowadays. Like, I try to be the adult. I don't try to be. My life goal is to be the adult that I needed when I was a child for other kids. Do you take time to give yourself credit for that? No, because I don't feel like you should get credit for doing what it is that you're supposed to be doing. If you're putting together a self-image, self-worth, self-esteem, you've got to inventory everything on both sides of the ledger, right? Mm. And if all you do is take inventory of the stuff you fucked up, all you do is say, you know, I did this in the hood, I did this, I did that, I cheated, I da 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 and you don't put anything on the positive side of the ledger, then you're lying to yourself, right? Yeah. I feel like a dick doing that, though. Like, if I do something good for somebody, I don't go broadcasting it, not even to myself. I was in Chicago this past Saturday, and my, my homegirl, Kendra G., she does radio in Chicago. She was telling me a story about something I did for her a decade ago that I don't even remember. And she was telling the audience, like, and that's how I knew he was such a good person because he didn't even have to do that. Like, I didn't even really know him like that. And he, he, he wasn't trying to sleep with me or anything. He just did it out of the goodness of his heart. And I'm like, she was like, do you remember that? And I was like, nope. Because that's just the type of person I am. So it's like I'm not keeping record of every good thing I, I do for somebody. I understand what you're saying, though. It's self-attribution. I mean, there's a whole school of thought about self-attribution. That is, we form opinions of other people based on our observations of them, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you've got somebody that works at your studio and they're there every morning, right on time, they got everything ready, they're buttoned up, never miss. I mean, you just know they're as reliable as a clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you watch that and you see it. And so you attribute to them reliability, dependability. You attribute those traits and characteristics to them based on those observations. We form our own self-image the same way. We watch what we do, particularly in situations that matter, crisis situations, difficult situations, 
we watch what we do, and based on our observations of ourselves, we attribute traits and characteristics to ourselves. That's true. And if we fail to do that, then our self-image just flops around. It never takes a direction. And if you deny yourself those attributions, then you don't ever get an accurate image of yourself. And that leaves you vulnerable to things like hypochondria and anxiety and that sort of thing because you're not your best friend. You don't know yourself. And the opinions of others as well. You can't give your power away to other people. I mean, I'm one of those people that does not need to be loved by strangers. Thank God. I got haters on the internet, just like I'm sure you do. Oh, 100%. That's, a, that's another source of my anxiety. Yeah, but fuck. Uh, yeah. I feel that way, too. It's like, you, like I don't got time to be fighting ghosts. And yeah. Like, they're ghosts. Like, they're literal phantoms. I'll, I'll never meet these people in my life. I understand what you're saying, though, because I do feel like my purpose in life, the thing that makes me fulfilled more than anything, is service to others. Like, I genuinely love helping people. When I say I want to be that adult that I needed as a child, like, I love using my resources to empower other people. That's what I love more than anything. Like nothing makes me feel better than throwing an assist. If I was a basketball player, I would lead the league in assists. Mm-hmm. So I do I do understand that aspect of it. You a good father? I could be better. I think I'm good. I think I could be better, you know. Um I could be more attentive. I don't want to just be there. You know, I want to be very present. It's a difference between being there and being present. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes I'm just there and I have this to blame a lot of the times. You know, sometimes I just got to take this smartphone, throw it in the drawer and lock it up and leave it alone. Like I'm flying out on the red eye tonight because I want to. Then you'll go into the shakes if you put oh, it in the drawer. A hundred percent. We're hundred percent. But that's why I'm going home on the red eye tonight because, you know, it's Halloween tomorrow and I want to. Yeah. I got a fly-ass Iron Man suit that I want to throw on and go trick-or-treating with my daughter, you know? Yeah, I got to be a puppy. Robin's a kitten. I'm a puppy for our grandkids. Dope. So Dope. I got heavy ears. And, Dope. Uh, so, so, so I could be better. Like, I, I, I get guilt with that, too, because I feel like I'm not good with— Like, my second daughter doesn't pay me no attention whatsoever. Like, she really treats me like— Like, literally, like, if I walk in the door and she'll hear the door beep, like, beep, beep, she'll come running and be like, oh, that's just daddy. And, like, go back about her business. My yeah. And how old is she? Three. Yeah, My oldest well, daughter loves me. Yeah, welcome to the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Trust me, that ain't about you. That's not about me? No, that's, oh, okay. that's her. My oldest daughter is different, though, because my oldest daughter, like, I guess because I got fired. She was born June 2008. I got fired for the third time from radio November 2008. And so I was home for like seven, eight months with her, like throughout that whole process, because my wife was going to work. So I was feeding her the bottles and changing her diapers. So me and her just have that connection. Like with my three-year-old, I was in the midst of all of this, you know, all of this breakfast club action and television and all of that other kind of stuff. So I wasn't like really present like I needed to be. And, I, and that's what that's what scared me about my third daughter. Like, so I try to get home and make sure she, I hold her and she knows me and she feels my heart beating as they say. So hopefully we have that, that bond. I'm not your therapist, but if I was, one of the things I would do would be really influence you to make a self-attribution list. And you say, I'm a good father. And I get good is the enemy of great. So mm-hmm. it's not that you've arrived at good, but because you're so task oriented and you go, 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 do, 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 I would say you got to make a list of your personal truth. I think personal truth is so important because we generate the results we think we deserve. Mm. We generate the results we think we deserve. 
And I had a really damaged personal truth because my father was such a bad alcoholic. You know, you'd never bring your friends home when you got an alcoholic father. I mean, I did one night because it was just by accident. We kind of wound up in that part of the neighborhood. I was in the fifth grade. I saw something in the driveway. I thought it was a trash can blown over. It's February in Denver. It's him asleep in the driveway. You know, mm. he's in the house. He got hot. Made perfect sense to him to come out just in his boxer shorts with his pillow, lay down in the driveway. It's like 20 degrees. You walk up with six or eight friends, and you're, you know, you're drunk. Father's laying in the driveway, and you go, oh, shit. You know, what do you yeah. say? And the problem with particularly kids, but everybody does it, is we compare our personal truth to their social mask. Mm. They may be more screwed up than you are, but mm. you don't see that. You compare your personal truth to their social mask, Ooh. and you always lose. Oh, that's, that's the problem with social media, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Social media is painting, it's creating this unattainable picture of perfection. All these selfies these girls take, they take 1,100 of them before they put one up. That's a fact. And it's got to be photoshopped and all. Nobody looks like that. My problem is that, like, like social media is everybody's highlight reel. Like, you're not seeing none of the shots nobody's missing. Yeah. But I think that they're taking that virtual reality perfection and try to, trying to bring it into the real world. And they're trying to make all of us walk around and act like we're so perfect. Like, nobody's expressing their personal truths, yeah, exactly. as you say. I got a quote in one of my books. says, not even Christy Brinkley looks like Christy Brinkley. By Christy Brinkley. I mean, that's <laughs> 100%. It's so true. I think with you, I would tell you, you got to write down the good things and then put a to-do list out there. Like, I'm a good father, to-do list, be better. You know, I'm a good husband, yeah. to-do list, be better. But you got to give yourself credit for the things you're doing right. Or you, if you don't reinforce the good stuff, you'll never repeat it. You'll never build on it if you don't reinforce the good stuff. Yeah, in the four agreements, it says to always do your best. I just feel like, you know, I, I just don't, don't want to lie to myself. I guess maybe I'm just too hard on myself. Like, I don't want to put down all the positive things about myself and, like, none of that is none of that is accurate. No, it's not like bullshitting yourself, but aren't you lying to yourself if you don't recognize that you are a vigilant, loving father? That's very true. I don't know many parents that wouldn't die for their children. Mm. You would die for your children. 100%. I pray. That's actually one of my prayers. I tell God anything negative you want to happen to them, let it happen to me. Most parents would die for their children. A much smaller group will live for their children. Ooh. And you are one of those people that will live for your children because you're willing to get on a plane, fly home in the middle of the night. And a lot of people wouldn't do that. And you don't like compliments, but I do this for a living. I'm telling you, that's something you have to acknowledge yourself for because it'll cause you to do it more, do it better, and they'll appreciate it. That you have to go like announce to the world, I'm a great father. You have to affirm yourself. These are the good things you want to embrace and do more of. And unless you identify those things as a target, how do you know? You have to identify those and say, these are good things I'm going to embrace and do more of. True indeed. Then it gets to be habitual. And then your daughters grow up and look for a man that does what you did. 100%. The most powerful role model in any child's life is the same-sex parent. And the second most powerful model is the other sex parent, and they learn about men from their father. 100%.
you set that role model, then that's where they go. That's what they look for. You're absolutely right. A hundred percent. What do you want for your children to do when they grow up? Do you care as long as it's passion or you got um, something in mind? For no, them? I mean, you know, it's interesting because my daughter, my 10 year old, as long as I can remember, she's been saying she wants to be a dentist and she wants to go to Harvard. I don't even know where she got that from. Now, I took her to Harvard, you know, a couple of times because I spoke there, but that's her thing. She wants to be a dentist and she wants to go to Harvard. That's what she, she, she's been talking about that literally since she's been about Nobody wants to four. be a dentist. She wants to be a dentist. Like, she, she's <laughs> hell-bent on wanting to be a dentist, and I'm not, I'm not going to stop that passion. And she loves know. gymnastics, you know, so it's just like whatever makes her happy. Like, I'm not one of those people. I'm not a, I'm not the typical American who thinks that success is equated to celebrity. Cause I think that's one of the worst things that America is dealing with right now. We think that success equates to some form of celebrity. I think that it's somebody right now, I don't think, I know, there's somebody in Charlotte, North Carolina making $50,000 a year. They got a house, they got food on the table, their family's great and they're happy. That is success to me. Success oh, yeah. is subjective, yeah. you know? If you're not, you could be making millions of dollars, but if you're not happy, doing what it is that you're doing, then that's not success. So like whatever makes her happy, whatever makes any of them happy, I will be pleased. Safe and happy, that's all I mean. That's all I want. That's what I was saying, I never met a man on his deathbed that said I wished I'd spent more time at the office. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You never hear that. Exactly, that's why even now it's like, even though you know we get announced as radio personality, TV personality, Author, executive producer, like, eh, eh, ain't nothing that gonna be on my tombstone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? No. I'm about to probably say loving father and husband. That's it. Plus, to our kids, we're not that. No. To our kids, we're just dad. Yeah. You know, they're, they're so unimpressed. And I, I'm at the point now where they give me anxiety because... I'm doing, trying to be cool and doing the latest dances, and they look at me like, hey, "What are you doing?" Yeah, no. like, you know what I'm saying. You and they're trying to do the muffin or whatever that yeah. they stupid dances. Then they're like, like they like, yeah. yeah, the floss. That's what yeah. it is. They're like, "Yo, stop! What are you doing, Dad? Like, Dad, Dad, stop! Yeah, you know, please stop. Please Somebody stop. might see you. Yeah, oh like, stop, God. Dad. It's astounding to me. I'm on TV every day, all day, and my kids like nothing. And then they'll just catch me. Just a glimpse in the audience at a football game or something. Ah, there's that. I mean, yeah. it's like, what? Yeah, and, and it's, it's funny. Um, like, I, I, my daughter, I took her to see A Wrinkle in Time, but I took her to the premiere earlier this year in L.A. So it was the actual premiere that Miss Ava DuVernay, yeah. you know, did. So it's like Ava DuVernay's there and Issa Rae and Oprah Winfrey, and she's, she meets all of these people. She's excited to see some Disney girl I'd never even heard of in my <laughs> life. In my life, like like ecstatic, like jumping up and down. I'm like, yo, calm down. We don't act like that for people. Meanwhile, I wish she would act like that with Oprah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, yo, you just met Oprah. You realize that you're nine years old and you just met Oprah Winfrey? And she says, she goes, she tells Oprah, yeah, I, I did a book report on you earlier this year, but I um I, I didn't know who you were. Me and my wife are like, what are you doing? If you don't shut up. I'm the same way. Both of my boys grew up with Oprah just in the house all the time. And they see her, it's like, eh, eh. Hi, Miss Winfrey. Yeah. Yeah. If you look ahead 10 years, what are you doing? 10 years from now, I would hope that um, I'm still on a spiritual journey. I think about how 
I feel like at 40, I entered a new round. I, I actually tried to backtrack and think, did I feel this way at 30? Did I feel this way at 20? At 40, I felt a shift. I felt my energy shift. I felt like I was entering a, a, a new territory. And I don't know if it was because of all the maintenance I had been doing leading up to my 40th birthday by like, you know, going to therapy and like just trying to be as spiritually sound as I possibly could be, or even just, you know, really doing right by my wife. Like, I, mean, I shouldn't be, this is nothing to brag about, but I haven't cheated in like three years. We've been together 20 years, by the way. And I mean, she's cheated on me as well in the process of this whole 20 year thing. As, and I've done that to her too. But when you love somebody, you know, you forgive and you keep it moving. So it's just like, I've really been doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So I feel like I just entered this, this new realm at 40. So I hope in 10 years when I hit 50, I go to another realm and I hope that this decade is just a decade of growth and evolution on a spiritual level, on an emotional level. You know, I hope that my daughter is in college in the next 10 years, you know, and my, my, my other, my other two daughters are watching her lead and her example and saying, I want to do what my big sister does. And I hope that me and my wife are still together and we're, you know, as, as, as loving and as strong as we, as we, we've always been. So everything I want to do in the next 10 years really is, is a personal thing. Now on a professional level, I hope that I'm the first black man to host a late night TV show. You know, that would be fun. Since oh, Arsenio. Really? Yeah, it hasn't been one since Arsenio. Oh, really? You know? But I, but, I, but I hope that, you know, I can do that one day. Because I feel like, you know, I mean, I love Stephen Colbert. He's from South Carolina like me. He always has me on. And, I, I, you know, I like, like what Fallon and Kimlin and those guys do. But I think it needs some color in that space. You know? Oh, really? <laughs> I do make a lot of television, you know? I see. Uh, huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You would be really good at that. I think so. You can't script it. You just got to go out there and talk to people. I mean, you got to really be inquisitive and you got to really ask, you know, questions that the viewer would want to ask. Yeah, I've, um, I had my own show on, on MTV, too. I had like five seasons, which was a good training ground for me. It was called Uncommon Sense. And, right. You know, it's, it's going in January, right? Uh -huh. Okay, yeah, I did. You know, last year I got the opportunity to switch seats with Stephen Colbert and he let me sit in his desk and interview him. And that was like, you know how you can feel your future? Yeah. Like I felt my future. It felt right. I felt my future in that moment. I'm like, this is, this is my future. Like yeah. I was wearing my future. Yeah. He, he, he made a joke. He goes, cause I asked him one of the questions I asked him, I said, um, you know, what are you doing to what, how are you using your white privilege to combat prejudice? And he goes, you're sitting in it. <laughs> and I was like, it feels very warm. Yeah. And it's, you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, I, I hope that, you know, that's what, that's what I hope to be doing personally and professionally in the yeah. future. There's a couple of things I want to cover from the book, and then I'll let you go because I know you got to be somewhere. You talk about epigenetic inheritance. Mm -hmm. Talk about what you mean by that. Well, there was a study done um, about... Uh, it's that definition right there from the book. Yeah. The passing from one generation to another of the effect that environmental factors such as nutrition, activity, social interaction, sleep patterns, etc., has had on the expression of a specific gene. And there was a study done on the descendants of Holocaust survivors. And they had anxiety and trauma and PTSD. And I was like, y'all didn't do this study on anybody else in America? Like, you think African-Americans don't go through that? Like, I got a homegirl. 
Her name is Angela Rye. She talks about PTSD being uh, post-traumatic slave disorder. And I, I truly feel that way. Like, you know, even if it's just something as simple as when police get behind you and you get nervous as a black person, I'm the type of guy I pull over. Like if there's a gas station or something, I pull over. That might go back to when the, sl the, the police were slave catchers, where they used to go out and have to round up the, the slaves that were trying to escape. So that could just be that, because I don't know why I feel that way when police yeah. get behind me. Like, I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not in the streets no more. So why do I feel that way? So I feel like, absolutely, I feel like that pain is just passed on from generation to generation. And I think it takes us to break that cycle of pain because you can't heal what you don't reveal. Like, this is probably the first generation of men that are actually admitting we're damaged. Like, we have trauma like the things that we used to normalize in the hood aren't normal and we're trying to break that cycle and break those chains yeah let me say it again for people if you didn't and it'll be on the website too but it's the passing from one generation to another of the effect that environmental factors such as nutrition activity social interactions sleep patterns etc has had on the expression of a specific gene and it's not about identifying the gene. The important thing is that all of these factors are passed on from generation to generation, and they're just there. It is there. And I've seen it. Like, you know, you talk about your father being an alcoholic. My father was a, a alcoholic, you know, and my father was in and out of rehab. My father had struggles with, with cocaine abuse, you know, and I feel like the alcohol aspect hit me for a second. And then when I started to think about, I remember my mother saying this vividly, like, you need to be careful because you have alcoholism that runs in your family. And you know, like I look at like my little brothers, they have caught two to three DUIs. And you know, it's like, I kind of backed away from it and it, it escaped me, but then I see it kind of hit them in a different way. So that just lets me know that it, that is real. So, you know, you just gotta really do be, be careful. I've had to tell my boys because Robin's dad was about alcoholic. My dad was about alcoholic. And I haven't had a drink since I was 16. So I've had to tell my boys because they've not seen it. And it can skip a generation. So I've said, look, you don't realize that you're predisposed to this because you've never seen your dad take a drink. Ooh. So don't go to sleep on this because you're pre-wired, man. Absolutely. So don't let it sneak up on you because you've never seen it. I saw my dad do all this. I'd come home, the windows are kicked out and cars wrecked. Yeah. And but they don't see that, so it can sneak up on them. So I've had to remind them, I just don't drink because I saw what it did. And yeah. I, I didn't want it to I'm happen. I was arguing with a close family member yesterday because, you know, found out that they're on cocaine. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not even mad because it's just like that's what I'm used to. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? Like I'm used to that in my family. I'm used to a cousin being on crack or this one being on coke, but I'm like, we, there's nothing for us to discuss. Like you're going to rehab immediately, yeah. you know? Yeah. And they hit me with the same thing that every family member in my life has ever hit me with. I'm fine. Trust me, I don't have a problem. And I'm like, I know it's all downhill from there. That tears you up more than anything. Cause this is, you were, re I told him that yesterday. I said, yo, you are a rerun. Yeah. Like this isn't even new. Yeah. Like you know where this is going to end up. Yeah. I've had a lot of luck with telling people they deserve it instead of need it. They're less defensive. <laughs> <laughs> so, I got to use that one. <laughs> so what do you do for fun? Um, 
I like being at home. I'm a homebody, man. I'm a cancer. I, I literally like being at home. I have my house decked out to where I don't have to go any anywhere. I got the pergola in the backyard. I got the man cave in the basement. You know, I have a bar full of alcohol that nobody drinks. And it's just like, I just, I li really like being at home. And I like, I like having big dinners, you know, I like having big dinners with my friends and my family because we all get to sit around and laugh and talk and put the phones away. I like going on big family and friend vacations, you know what I mean? Like to, to like exotic islands and like, you know, I come from the country. So it's just like, my mom just got a passport last year and I've been able to take my mom out the country a couple times, you know, since then we went to Grenada for the New Year's and then we went to Anguilla over the summer. And like, that's what I really look forward to. You know, I like I like that my niece and my oldest daughter are bougie. You know, they talking about they're turning their nose down at islands, turning their nose up at islands like oh, yeah. again. You know, yeah. <laughs> I like I like that. I like that they're, they 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 got stamps on their passport you know that stuff that i didn't get when i was their age oh hell no no yeah but isn't that great to get to it. introduce that to them i love it watch their faces when they see that i love it it's great all right last question if you're talking to a group of african-american men right now about mental health about therapy about not dealing with this silently and suffering through it what do you say to them I would tell them that mental health is wealth. And I would tell them that the same way, you know, society teaches us to take care of their bodies, we have to, to, we have to take care of our brains in that way. I would let them know that a lot of things that we normalized in the hood growing up were not normal. The violence is not normal. You know, like, like you're not supposed to get guns pulled on you. It's not supposed to be so easy for you to pull a gun on somebody else. Like, you know, you know, the, 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 the pain that we cause other people in the hood, the pain that we receive in the hood, that's not normal. And I think that a lot of us are damaged and traumatized because of it. And I would tell them that therapy is a resource to help them organize all the bullshit that they've got in their brain. And it, and it will help them to unlearn a lot of the BS that we, we learned growing up. Because I just think that the whole definition of masculinity is flawed. You know, and the whole definition of what is real is flawed. Like growing up for me, being real was actually being criminal. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like you had to be doing something criminal in order to look like you're real. That's one reason when I go home, I don't kick it with all my old homies. Because in order for me to still look like I'm real and I haven't changed, I got to be in the hood doing criminal stuff with them. I'm not ruining my life and risking my life, you know, to prove something to y'all. So I would tell them, man, if you really want to like... Be real. Being real is just admitting that we're damaged. And, you know, it's ways to fix that damage. And it's perfectly okay. Don't take better care of your car than you do your brain. Man, that is well said. That is really well said. And I want people to know there are these hotlines that are out there where you can call and talk to people when you're in crisis. The community mental health centers. Because sometimes if people think, well, you know, I don't have the ability to pay, or people think I want anonymity. Today, therapy is available online. I mean, face-to-face -face with people yeah. online where you don't have to leave your home even. There are so many options out there, the stress hotlines, and they don't press you to give your name. So money's not an excuse. Embarrassment's not an excuse. Time is not an excuse. It means the 24-hour-a-day availability. So 
you know, you're setting a great example, and I know you don't like compliments, but I'm damn proud that you wrote this book. Thank you. I've been talking to Charlemagne the God, and the book is Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me. And listen, I am a professional, and I do have more degrees than a thermometer, and I learned a hell of a lot from this book. Wow. And if I did, you can. And so I'm telling you, read this book. He's too humble to thump his chest about it, but let me thump his chest for him. This is a damn good read. It's well written. It's well done. There are insights in here. You'll find yourself in this book, and if you don't, you're not being real. So Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me, so read it. You'll be glad you did. Thank you, Dr. Phil. Charlemagne, thanks. Appreciate Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Find Fill in the Blanks in your podcast app and subscribe for free so you don't miss an episode.